0: Thank you for downloading this episode of the Football Purist podcast. For more episodes, go to www.footballpurist.com and you can also find us at iTunes.
1: Welcome, everyone, to a special holiday edition of Cafe Football. This is the podcast that pulls out all the big ideas in the game of football and relates whatever we can to what's happening week to week on the pitch. Often that means in the Premier League, but increasingly from a global perspective as well. I'm your host, Jeff Hallett, and I'm joined again by the lads in Part 1, Jimmy Hone and Kevin Hubbard. Cannot even if I tried... Be more excited to introduce part two of our series on Liverpool legend Steve Nicol and his autobiography Five League Titles and a Packet of Crisps, featuring an interview with the man himself. And I should really say, the man, Steve and his co author, Mark Donaldson, also from ESPN. I must say, it's always a privilege to be able to access the brains behind all of these ideas. And as you listen to this one, never more so is it relevant than with these two guys. Stevie's, of course, a proper Liverpool legend with more silverware than modern LFC fans, myself included, would really know what to do with. And he's also an accomplished manager in the MLS, and every night he can be heard these days as a pundit on ESPN FC. His co-author, fellow ESPN battery mate Mark Donaldson, is no slouch himself, a widely recognized football broadcaster, including some other sports. And acclaimed author, including this book. So we could not have asked for a better and more complete look at Stevie's career as well as what's happening week to week with Liverpool. So let's get into this one. As we do, we tackled a number of the key topics from the book, most of which you can hear in part one. Here are some of my favorites. So common theme throughout the book is this concept of the Liverpool Way that dates back to Bill Shankley. So all of the Liverpool supporters will get a well-rounded perspective on what that means, what that meant from a club philosophy standpoint, as well as to Stevie personally and how it pervaded every part of his life. And we'll also look and see if that's returned under Jurgen Klopp, if the current side that you see with Liverpool week to week mirrors some of those tenets. And Mark interestingly had also covered Dortmund in his time at ESPN. So from a broadcasting perspective, historical perspective, he's got a lot to say. As you'll see, it's pretty remarkable how many parts of Steve's life relate back to his time at Liverpool from his time as a player at the club in through the tragedy that was Hillsborough, post-club career as a player in some of the lower division sides and later as a manager and now as a pundit, it is pretty transcendent through every part of his life. And of course, Hillsborough itself revealing a very human side of Stevie, how he dealt with it as a player on the pitch that day, what that meant to both sides of fans from Liverpool to Forest. So I think Liverpool and Forest supporters alike will get a lot out of this. And Mark also provides a perspective, having grown up in Scotland and been aware of what was happening and where he was that day. So pretty interesting discussion there. And what were some of the other favorites from Jimmy and from Kevin say? Stevie's time with the lower division sides. I think Jimmy gets into a good question there. And then safe standing. We've seen West Ham, for example, move into Olympic Stadium. What does that mean? Does that reduce atmosphere or are there safe standing standards that can be implemented that will keep the atmosphere and keep people safe at the same time? Kind of a cool discussion. Anyway, what an interview for those that listen to part one, you're certainly going to love this. And for our new listeners, of course, welcome. I would, if I were you, give part one a listen because it goes through all the basics of the book and really the foundation of what we're going to discuss in this interview. So for what that's worth, you can find part one on footballpurist.com or iTunes or just this channel that you've subscribed to on your podcast app. So without further ado, here's the interview. Enjoy. Okay, as I mentioned, we're very fortunate to have with us today the man at the center of this book we've been diving into and discussing over part one of this two-part series on Steve Nichols' autobiography, the five league titles, and a packet of crisps. Not always easy for us Yanks to enunciate. Steve Nichols himself and his co-author Mark Donaldson are here Stevie, who many Liverpool fans know simply as a legend, in addition to that packet of crisps, he helped bring the gift that many Liverpool fans, including myself, continue to chase, which is silverware. Five league titles, three FA Cups, Football of the Year in 89, Champions League Final, of course. MLS and New England Revs fans will know him simply as the guy that turned their club around in the early going, became MLS Coach of the Year in his first year reached the MLS Cup Finals four times and Eastern Conference Finals every year through 07. And then Knott's County, Doncaster Rovers, and Sheffield Wednesday supporters would call him a consummate professional. And so many of us today, including the Liverpool supporters on this pod, consider Stevie one of the more objective voices in the media evaluating football every night on ESPN FC. And then we also have his fellow Scotsman, Mark Donaldson, who is a widely recognized broadcaster for ESPN in football, of course, in addition to tennis and golf. He's the author in all of his spare time, including this one, for this autobiography for Stevie, in addition to several others, and has become an acclaimed author in his own right. So it's very nice to have you both, Stevie and Mark. Welcome to Cafe Football. Good to be here. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for joining. Let's introduce my co-hosts as well, really quick. Got Jimmy Tori who is a staple on Cafe Football. How you doing, Jimmy? Hey guys, how's it going? Good morning. Good to have you. And then we've also got Kevin Hubbard, who is a new one to Cafe Football, but was key part of part one of this two-part series. Hey Kevin. Hey Jeff, how's it going? Good. Okay, getting into the book itself. I figured this would be a good question to kick it off. How did this book really come together between you two? was curious how long both of you had become colleagues at ESPN and aware of one another describe that if you
2: could yeah I uh I've been at ESPN since 2010 Stevie's on and off been since 2011 after his time with the revs and it wasn't long after I started here I'd written a couple of other books and asked Stevie if he wanted to or ever would be interested in doing a book and he laughed at me and said never and that was the end of the matter and then Stevie came to me uh, about two years ago and. asked me if I wanted to write his book after inquiring why. Um, he was just like, oh, I just felt the time was right, that uh, it was time to do it. So, uh, yeah, there's no way I was going to turn the chance to work with someone like Stevie down. And hopefully you, uh, you enjoyed the final product.
1: We definitely did.
0: Stevie, how was the collaboration for you? Um, it was a real simple process of Mark came to my house probably once a week. Uh, I had a few cans of beer and he wrote down stuff that we talked about
1: <laughs> it really wasn't
0: complicated and and he did a lot of, I mean it's, it's amazing when you do a book, how your mind plays tricks on time you know, some of the things I was talking about when Matt looked it up, I was like two and three years out you know, so it's not quite simple when people think you're doing an autobiography, you're just going to remember everything, sure you remember stuff but getting the time and stuff right was difficult and Matt was was good at a lot of that and, and he did a lot of research and really was just throwing things at me that, that would click something in my mind uh, and then of course as I said after that we would get the actual dates and times and years and stuff like that uh, and get it all get it all in a row so you know we certainly didn't we just did topics and then once we'd kind of finished everything we we sort of put it together in, a, in the time frame that it all happened i think the, the difficulty
2: of putting a book like this together before the internet would be would be huge you you wouldn't have the same uh, ability to research i mean some of the, the the websites lfchistory.net was was invaluable to me now you could have put the book together just with stories but there would have probably been a few more mistakes if you had or didn't have the ability to to fact check uh, as quickly and, and, and as easily. It would have been far more of a, a, a kind of a time consuming effort uh, before the internet to put together something like this. Yeah, you'd be running down encyclopedia books and
1: God knows whatever else.
2: Not everything exists as well. And the guys at LFChistory.net, I'm sure Stevie will testify as well, they've done an unbelievable job. And, and that was a, a lot of the help as well because. Uh, pretty much every game they have match reports from the times or the guardian or the sunday times or or whatever and as stevie said if he wasn't sure about something it was easy for me just to double check something because it did exist because as you know guys not everything was was kept back then and of course there was the the television strike as well so some of stevie's goals um that he scored aren't even uh, aren't even visible because there was a, a tv strike at the beginning of one of the seasons
1: yeah i mean The few call-outs to check out YouTube for this and that were extremely helpful, (laughs) to your point, wouldn't have been possible way back in the day. Getting into your Liverpool years, Stevie, and talking about collaboration, Hillsborough. So one of the obviously tough subjects, and I could just imagine for the two of you, it was described in the book, but I'm sure there's more color that supporters would be interested in, Uh, tough as this subject is to bring up for... The families and for all the supporters, obviously a super important one. I can only share for my own perspective, the tears running down my face, even reading this book, as well as the 30 for 30, it's just kind of an equal account. Stevie, your selfless support of the families, the struggles which followed for you personally, I guess to start, and you talked about the collaboration, how difficult was this for both of you? recalling the dates and assembling the information on the innocuous stories or the fun stories great but for this one you described a little bit of it but wow i'm sure that was difficult
0: yeah there was a few tears um but to be honest i had never really other than my other than myself and my wife we'd never really spoken about about hillsborough and in, in any sort of any sort of length or any sort of detail because it's it's kind of one of those things that, you know, at the time you do what you have to do, uh, certainly what we, we all wanted to do, and then you kind of bury your head in the sand once, once you try and move on, because thinking of it upsets you. And, you know, for, I mean, forever and a day, there'll be things that will happen that just remind you of it anyway. Uh, I mean, that will never go away. But having written about it in the book, it doesn't seem quite as painful as it as it used to when it was brought up. Uh, it really has it really has helped me and my and my wife. Just for that reason that we really hadn't spoken about it in length and to have been able to do that. Which I guess when you read the book and, and I say that, you know, we should have been we should have been given some help, but back then you know, it wasn't the manly thing to do, and, and people didn't right. understand right. that 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 being able to sit down and talk to somebody would have helped. You know, people just didn't realise that 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 would make it would have made a difference, and and so kind of being able to do that, albeit what twenty seven years later, it has really helped. As I said, both my my wife and myself, and and uh, Big Mark just kind of sat there and. You know, he just let us talk. So it's, it's really made a difference to us. Yeah, And for you, Mark,
1: I don't know if you lived through Hillsborough or had an intimate understanding when it happened, or like me, my consciousness of the club came much later in life. Was it tuning in for the first time, or was this just a deepening of the impact of the story?
2: I was, uh, I'm a Hearts fan, and we were up in Dundee that day at, uh, at Den's Park, and I was 12 years old. And um, I, I remember, I think our game was called off just before kickoff. And as a result, we ended up, I think my mum and dad took me shopping and we saw on the TVs and the, the mall or whatever it would be at, at the time that the, the, there were these pictures from, from a football stadium. And so I wasn't, I, I was aware of it. I, I kind of lived through the, the, what happened afterwards so to to get a, such an in-depth um, comment from someone who was involved was, it was tough because as I said in the book, I, I didn't know how I was going to broach this and Stevie brought it up. We did it once and the only time we did it again was when we were fact checking at the end because I got 45 minutes of stuff from Stevie that day and the only uh, other stuff that I, I wanted from him and I made an effort to go and see him on the day of the verdict was was kind of more happy rather than kind of sad stories. So it, it's taken me closer to it and it, it made me realise just what it was like for, for, for those. And Stevie mentioned the fans as well, not just the Liverpool, the Forest fans and their players as well. And that's something that a lot of people have forgotten about as well. It didn't just affect the Liverpool fans and, and, and the families. A lot of people would have been affected by that. Um, so to get the closure, and we got lucky with the book when the timing was of when it was to come out, we got lucky that we were able to put an epilogue in like that, that uh, that mentioned the, the the result and the verdict as well. Uh, that that was a big thing for the book, and I think it kind of wrapped it up nicely at the end.
1: Yeah, and you mentioned the Force fans, that was key topic in part one of our pod, where a lot of us really hadn't even thought of it until it was surfaced in the book because they were on the pitch too and of course it didn't happen at their end but still the impact on them and their supporters not really talked about much at all
2: and it's something that they've had to deal with I mean what what kind of struck me and I think it's the then and now as Stevie was talking about the that's well, not exactly a manly thing to do is it counseling I mean they got offered it. Let's not let's not kind of um, make any bones about it. it. It was offered, but the point that Stevie makes in the book, and I think it has to be um, kind of mentioned again, it should have been it should have been mandatory. These guys are footballers. That's what they do. That's why they got paid what they got paid, and that's why they achieved what they got what they achieved. They're they're not psychologists. They're not counselors. But no one there, w- there wasn't a, a precedent. No one knew how to deal with something like that. It, it happened. Um, and, and for for everybody involved back then, you saw what Stevie said what was it three, four years that probably affected him for there wasn't anybody who knew what to do. That that was the issue. There wasn't anybody that knew that counselling should have been mandatory. So that was the problem that, that they had. And it just there wasn't a solution. That's the bottom line to that.
1: I'm just curious for both Mark and Stevie. I'm wondering what you guys think about safe standing that they do, like in Germany and, and other places, With they would incorporate that back to England you guys have a more in-depth view of what happened at Hillsborough and if I, I know the atmospheres are somewhat lacking but do you think that you would be okay with the safe standing or, or do you think it's it's just too much considering everything that happened
0: no not at all I think the key is you called it safe standing that's if it's safe standing then that's what it is and I would have no problem uh, I, I think football's a football's a sport that that certainly I prefer to stand and watch and if if they could, if, well, they found a way in Germany, uh, and if it's, if it's adopted in, in the Premier League, I would have no problem with that. Absolutely. Not not
2: not at all. They actually do it in Scotland. Celtic have got safe standing in the corner, and they have a, a, a group of fans called the Green Brigade, and they pressed for this, and Celtic are, uh, they, they put it in this season. It's been really well received as well, because you're limiting uh, safe standing areas, as Stevie said, you're, you're making them all ticket you're limiting the number of people that can go there bearing in mind what happened at Hillsborough was not the fault of the fans it was the fault of, of a few people and a few individuals and a few organizations as well so I think the key thing would be if it was to be introduced in the Premier League it would have to be with the blessing of the the, the families of the 96 as well and if they can be persuaded then I think uh, I think it would be a, a green light it's a
1: tremendous point, Mark. Uh, okay, Liverpool, uh, in terms of the Hillsborough episode, take a deep breath and kind of move on to the rest of the book. So beginning with the Liverpool way, mentioned earlier that my personal Liverpool conscience didn't come till much later in the history of the club, the latter part of the Suarez years and Gerard, of course, Rogers, which are uh, unfortunate, tough times for a lot of us getting a clear understanding of what everybody called the big red machine and what that meant, you know, for the Liverpool supporters. You know, it's like the visceral description of what went into that side, Stevie, the accountability, the ethics, the doing your job, leadership on the pitch,
0: expecting to win every match. To be honest, though those those things didn't start with the team that I that I was in or I joined. This the the whole Liverpool Way started with with Shankly, and you know a lot of a lot of people. I think when you say that, go well. All right, he was good, but I mean, there's no ifs, or ands, or buts. the The whole philosophy, the whole thinking, the whole way things were done started with Shankly, and and stayed that way till the early nineties. Uh, whether it was training, and as I said, the philosophy, you know, the way we went about things. I mean, people people today talk about coaching as if coaching's the answer for everything i don't remember a day where we did what teams do now and certainly and i can tell you i actually did it at, at the revs i would get the team on the field and i would i would you know walk through shape and all these other things that stuff that stuff wasn't done we didn't do any of that for for 30 years from the 60s through the 90s and guess what? <laughs> we won a few trophies and a few league titles and a few European Cups and a few FA Cups and a few League Cups and a few charity shields. We didn't we didn't do bad. So, you know, sometimes it's it's about it's about a mentality as opposed to everybody getting carried away today with it's all about coaching and tactics. Well, it wasn't. It was about a way of playing and sticking to it. I can only ever remember one game where Liverpool changed the way they they were set up to play. And that was the semi-final of the European Cup, 1978, I believe. They played uh, Bayern Munich when Sammy Lee did a man-marking job. In my living memory, that's the only time in 30 years Liverpool changed what they did to suit somebody else.
1: So it really came from those on the pitch, not necessarily coaches.
0: Well, no, it started. It's, it, it, it started with Shankley and his coaches, um, and then it, it it carried on through the coaches. So basically, the basically the the way we played and the philosophy and everything else was was put in, and all the coaches were there for two things. Number one, to make sure that whoever was in the team or whoever was in the squad or whoever was at Liverpool followed those those principles and, and and that mentality. And then of course you had to go and get the players who could actually follow that. And for 30 years Liverpool replaced stars with stars. You know, to 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 replace Ron Yates and, and Ian St John and Roger Hunt, it's like, well how are we going to do that? If you look at if you look through the history books, I mean you're talking Hansen's, Lawrence's you know, centre forwards, Rushes, Foulers, um, you know, Sunaces, and I mean, they just managed to fill star player slots with other star players, yeah. and and then the philosophy and everything else carried on. But I said in the book, it's like the Moonies. and that's exactly what it is because when when you joined an established. And it's, well, America, you'd probably say a programme, an established programme, an established way of doing things and, a, and an established mentality. That's what I meant by you get sucked in because you end up being that. You, you're turned from whatever you appeared as. You Obviously, they thought you had the tools to become a Liverpool player. Then once you get ens- ensconced in it, you're, you're turned into a Liverpool player and you're turned into doing things the Liverpool way. And that, that never leaves you. Everything I do today, even though I'm not coaching in, in, in the MLS now or, or anywhere else, but everything I do today, I can, I can point to something that I learned at Liverpool that makes me do certain things today. Interesting
1: thought as I went through this. You look at what's happening right now with the club, Jurgen Klopp's side. Players that he's put together and his philosophy, as you've seen, summer transfer transfer window take shape. How he was tuning into not just do you want to come, but are you willing to buy in fully to the philosophy? My philosophy. Speaking as Jurgen in German accent, but I can't do it. Do you both? Ask this of both Stevie and Mark. Do you see a lot of these tenants showing up again? Because during the Rogers years, it appeared to be waning. Right, and you could even go back to Hodgson. A lot of these like lost years for the club. Do you see it now reemerging? Some of these ethics, some of the expecting to win, the accountability on the pitch, lack of self identities for the players. You know, shining too much over
2: your team. You'll get two angles here. You'll get my angle from a a, a commentator's perspective and someone that did most of Jurgen Klopp's games when he was at uh, Borussia Dortmund, and you'll get. Stevie's angle as well, from a player's perspective. But you could guarantee—you've you, seen in German games as well in the Bundesliga when they when they go to the fans at the end of the game, irrespective of whether they've won, they've lost, or they've drawn, they they face the fans, they they say thank you as a group, and they take the heat when when things haven't gone wrong. And Klopp always said he didn't want to go to the big yellow wall behind the goal at the Westfalenstadion when they just lost. He said it's not a pleasant experience, and he wanted them to to have absolutely every bead of sweat out of them. Um, and, and I see the same with, with Liverpool. Uh, the, he's, he had them as very, very fit players, Dortmund, and he's got that as well at Liverpool, the Gagan pressing the high-pressing as well. And for, for me, Klopp's an interesting one because Stevie's spoken about some of the new breed of coaches that try and, you could argue, reinvent the wheel, and, and maybe Brendan Rodgers and Roberto Martinez are, are two of those as well. But with someone like Klopp, I think there's essences of old and new with him. I just love the way that his team believe in the boss and and they want to play for him. And I'm sure, as far as Stevie's concerned, you would have run through brick walls for for Paisley and for Fagan and for Dalgleish and
0: all these guys, wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I like the fact that, you know, certainly certainly. When you, play, when you play for Liverpool, when you go there as a young guy, you end up thinking everybody's, every other team's the same. And it's not until you leave Liverpool you understand that, guess what, <laughs> everywhere else is very, is miles from the same as Liverpool. And I think Klopp, a couple of things he does. Number one, he plays one way. He, he, he instills in his team one one way of playing, and it's it's about going forward, and it's about attacking the opposition. It's about squeezing the life out of them, and these are all the things that the teams are Liverpool teams are played in uh, do. Another thing is from from a from being a coach, it really rubs me the wrong way when I see particularly. Premier League coach is saying, Well, this week we're going to do this because we're playing this team. And next week we're going to do this because we're playing a team that plays a different way. And then the following week they're going to do that. I can assure you, having coached football players, it's hard enough to get everybody to be at their best to play a certain way. And if you think you can just turn around and keep changing players week in and week out and ask them to do this one week, ask them to do that next week. Ask him to do that the other week. And you're doing that three and four with three and four players. Now, don't be surprised if things go wrong. I just love the fact that he says, right, this is how we play. And if we play to the best of our ability, we're going to be anybody that's put in front of us. It's really interesting. You mentioned that Liverpool's dominance was between the 70s to the 90s
1: and there was a decline. And now you're talking about how Klopp likes to set up the Liverpool squad to play one way. Do you think those lost years, as, as Jeff mentioned, and do you think that's because managers maybe came into the squad and tried to get too fancy then? Is that the problem with, with what, what happened to Liverpool's dominance?
0: Uh, well, I think, there's, I think there's that. But I also think there's, you know, for some reason in the mid-90s, somebody decided that counter-attacking was the best policy. And I couldn't believe my eyes when I'm sat watching Liverpool at Anfield playing a counter-attacking game. I mean, th- teams were scared to go to Anfield. Sitting on the bus on the way to the game, the only thing they thought about was, oh, no, how many is it going to be today? And I'm, and I'm saying that because I've spoken to players that in my era played against us, and that's how they were thinking. They were going to Anfield thinking, oh, my God, we're, you know, Russian and Dalish are going to squeeze the life out of us. And then if we, if we actually... If we actually get possession of it, they're going to be all over us like a rash. I mean, teams are just scared to go to Anfield. And then all of a sudden, I see all these coaches going to Anfield, playing in a, a, a counter-attacking game. I couldn't believe my eyes. <laughs> now, now, shifting over, if that's even possible, we could
1: go hour or two on each of these individual topics. Appreciate the time, guys. Why don't we spend a minute or two on your career with the national team the scottish national team for code. and i'm curious to get your perspective stevie on as you were in mexico for the world cup and the one nil to denmark uh, some of the challenges with officiating on the pitch a lot of us that observe whether it's the scottish fa or fifa themselves properly as corrupt organizations the Visceral example of you checking into the hotel and how things would have been different for Liverpool that puts players first versus, in this case, Scottish FA execs and suits first checking in, which I thought that was just nuts. Is there any way to interpret your run in the World Cup that year as anything other than, you know, star-crossed and what happened here? Is there, did you think something corrupt was afoot? Yes, I guess
0: the question. You can have that
2: one, Stevie. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, listen. Her performance in Mexico had had nothing to do with what the suits were doing. Uh, the point I was making was is that you know again the book being you know mostly Liverpool. Again, that was a Liverpool way. It was the players first. You know they're the they're the guys that are going to be playing. They're the guys that are going to take the club to wherever they're going. The guys in suits were there to to help us and to make things easier for us as far as the travel and everyone else was concerned. I, I just felt the point had to be made that not everybody does that. And the SFA was was a point in particular. And the first time I noticed it, because, again, in 86, you're dealing with a professional player who got on with it. You know, we didn't sit around and, and mope about the suits you know getting checked in fast so that that wasn't the mentality of of your professional then i'm sure it probably is today but it certainly wasn't then so that that really had nothing to do with our performances in mexico listen the fact the fact was mexico was a million degrees with a bunch of ginger-haired pale-faced scotsmen who were just not used to it and we couldn't run <laughs> i mean that's that's the bottom line certain decisions that went against us could have meant we qualified for the second stages, um, but it, but it, it didn't work out. You know, I had a chance that it would have made a difference. Um, I didn't take it. So, as always in football, you don't always get what you deserve, and sometimes things conspire against you. I just, I just felt that the, the thing with the suits was another good example of, of, of what was good about Liverpool uh, and what happened at Liverpool. That, that didn't happen elsewhere yeah and so
1: on that subject of the suits all of us couldn't help but laugh when you describe the coach andy in the the locker room at half all all of those stories that sort of seem to devolve from bringing the star in an hour before kick and like taking credit for the win because of expert analytics <laughs> in the background i mean oh my god well, I mean, how does that guy follow talk- Fergie? Is I guess the first question, and second,
0: how'd you deal with it? Um, well, he, he didn't follow him very well. I mean, you know, you go from Jock Steen to Alec Ferguson to to Andy Roxburgh, and listen, Andy's a nice guy, but Andy's not a guy who who I don't think knew how to deal the best with with real pros. You know, his his upbringing up until being Scotland manager was with under sixteens. I mean it's not it's not <laughs> it doesn't seem like a natural progression to me, that's for sure. And and the fact that he would do the thing with Capello, um and, and obviously his his assistant, Craig Brown, was obviously of the same mind. He was the guy that after the game was given us large about how Andy did this and Andy did that. And I'm I'm just kinda sat there laughing, thinking, you know what? And again, the only reason—the only reason that changed for me was was after Hillsborough. Because up until Hillsborough, I just got on with it. I didn't bother with with all the, the silly stuff, you know. I just I just did my job and to the best as I could, and and everybody else was on the same boat. It wasn't until after Hillsborough when I kind of lost the plot a little bit that all these little things start making a difference to you. You know, you're not quite. You're not quite. I certainly wasn't mentally in the right place, or certainly where I had been before. It was rough, and so all those little things start building up and just start annoying you. And that's kind of where that's kind of where that comes from. And don't get me wrong. When I when I said you had to either have your shorts on, everybody had to have shorts on. Everybody had to either have long pants on. Everybody had to either have the socks up or socks down. I mean. You know all those childish things that you do with boys teams to to somehow figure it's going to do something for discipline. Those things didn't annoy me till after I kind of lost the plot and I wasn't quite as mentally strong as I was before. Stevie, consistent theme in the
1: book is your fortitude as a player. You know, in your upbringing and curbing the drinking to one day a week to obviously all the mental gymnastics dealing with the aftermath of Hillsborough and just manage, managing yourself as a player to later in your career, and I think a lot of people would be interested in this, what it took for you post-Liverpool career to build yourself back up and play for Knott's County and for Doncaster Rovers and Sheffield. Maybe you can describe for the audience like what that meant. Uh, were these... Like your fortitude—is well, that just a gift, or is this like phenomenal self-control and discipline?
0: Well, again, I would say it's—it's it's definitely a a, a a mental fortitude that that again I would suggest was built at Liverpool. Um, but you know, when you're you're at Liverpool and you know you're on you're on a good contract and you know you're comfortable. And when I say comfortable, I'm talking about, you know, your family's looked after, everybody's happy, you're providing the whole thing. Now, all of a sudden, I get to a stage where I know I've lost a step. I'm not the player I was, which happens to everybody. And all of a sudden, there's a reality of what am I going to do next? And, and all of these things just sort of come together at once. You know, you sit down with your family and we go, right, so how, what, what do we do now? You know, all of a sudden, this lovely little bubble you're in for 10, 12 years, all of a sudden's burst and you're kind of going into a different world because that Liverpool world was, was special and different. All of a sudden, you're actually in the real world, um, where even at clubs, not everybody's pulling for everybody, which is completely the opposite of what I was used to. I walked into Notts County and couldn't believe. Players wanted to. Players didn't want to be there. You know, they they would quibble with each other about the, the smallest thing. I mean, it was it, this was this was a complete reality shock. So so for me, it was it was all about still wanting to play. And how could I be at my best? Because all it's one thing to drop down a division, but it's one it's another thing to actually to be a guy that makes a difference. You know, my pride wouldn't let me do anything else. So I just got myself as fit as I could. Uh, number one to provide for my family. Two, because I wanted to make a difference. And three, was there any possibility that I might get back to the, the top level? And because of the work, uh, and because of that mentality that I got from Liverpool and, and because I wanted to, to be that provider for my family, then I eventually did get back up there and and, and, and from there been able to do that once meant that actually when my career was over, I was able to do it again by joining the, the coaching ranks. And of course, now I'm at ESPN. So having done it once after leaving a place like Liverpool, it doesn't have to give you a, a strength of mind that whatever happens in your life, in your career, you know, you, you fight on and you, you don't do anything other than that. You mentioning that you went down to the lower leagues. Would you say... A,
1: that made you a better player and B, do you think if the current stars of today were to go down to the lower leagues in England or their respective countries, instead of going to like the MLS to get a big paycheck, they would actually improve the game in their
0: country? The, the way that I feel like I, I personally think it made you a better player. I don't know if you would agree. Well, I think it made me a better person. I don't know about a better player when I was when I was <laughs> young, when I was young and I was at United, I was amongst a bunch of guys who were, who were, who were great pros who had played at a higher level, and who helped me learn things about the game. That, you know, had they just all packed up whenever they were their, their best, who, how do you pass that on? How 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 are the kids going to learn, and how are younger professionals going to learn the trade? You know, not obviously people like Ronaldo and Messi. These these guys have got extra special abilities. But there are certain things that, that that you can add to your game that you can learn from an old pro. So for me, that was part of it. But doing it was so much more enjoyable than I thought it ever would be. You know, to be in a position where, you know, young guys are looking up to you, you know, they're, they're looking at you for direction. I mean, it's a great, if you, if you have any brains, that, that's a great place to be. And why wouldn't you make the most of it? And and so going to Doncaster didn't make me a better player. It, it made me a better person and it made me a better professional because I could turn around and say, you know what? All those things that those guys did for me at United and at Liverpool because I was, I was still learning my trade at Liverpool. I'm, I'm happy I could pass that on to some other guys and enjoy myself at the same time.
1: Gents, I really appreciate both of you Carving out time to be with us on Cafe Football, I think the listeners got a lot out of this. I think the Liverpool supporters in particular are going to get a lot out, and and just a very wide-ranging discussion. We uh, can't thank you both enough. Pleasure, thank you. No problem. Cheers, lads.
2: Yeah, listen to you talk all day.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, and we'll continue to every night. Thanks, James.
2: Speak to soon. Thank you. Bye
1: bye. And that does it for us on Cafe Football. Again, please tweet out your questions to, you can find us on Twitter at CafeFootballFP, is in football purists. Hmm. My thanks again to Stevie Nichol and Mark Donaldson for being so gracious with their time and having such a great discussion with us. You must check out the book, Five League Titles and a Packet of Crisps. Again, you can find a link to it in the description of this pod, or you can find it on footballpurist.com, or you can find it on iTunes, your choice. And as always, the mighty Jimmy Torrejohn, who can be found at Stoppage Time FP, again, like Football Purists. And Kevin, when he's not at home Netflixing and chilling with his wife, he can be found at, and this is going to sound didactic, but at, come on, C-M-O-N-U, the letter U and reds, R-E-D-S, come on your reds, of course. So until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you